0: Hey everybody, today is August 22nd, 2019, and you know it's a very special day. It is my baby girl's birthday. I'm so excited for her. I'm going to deliver cupcakes to her school today, and in honor of her birthday, and well, just why not? We're going to do another throwback Thursday. This is episode 48, we're going to throw it back to February around February 21st, when I had life coach and 12-time author, Valerie Burton, my dear friend, for 20-plus-odd years on, and we talked for an hour. So hang on for this special extended edition of the Culture Soup podcast. And by the way, there are themes in her new book in this conversation, If you've picked up her new book, It's About Time, putting the meaningful over the urgent, you will recognize stories and themes in this conversation. Without further ado, a Throwback Thursday with Miss Valerie Burton. Hey y'all, this is Culture Soup, where tech, culture, and business collide. It's a podcast that spoons up everything hot from social media. I'm your host, L. Michelle Smith, and each episode, we bring you some of the most notable and not yet notable thought leaders in tech, business, and culture. The year was 2002, and I was a vice president at Ketchum Public Relations where I was overseeing media relations for a region and a wireless carrier that is no longer. Around that time, I received a phone call from a girlfriend that I had met in the late 90s. She was a young woman who had her own public relations agency there in Dallas, and she wasn't even 30. She was a dynamo, and instantly we became girlfriends. I remember us talking on the phone, talking about men, meeting for networking events, learning more about one another, and just becoming good sister friends. In this episode, my girlfriend and I cover the gamut. Everything from resilience, to failure, to how to speak, the ups and downs of entrepreneurship, how to write a book we go on and on for this conversation i encourage you to get somewhere quiet grab yourself something warm to drink or something that makes you warm when you drink it because this conversation has nuggets all through it my friend and i have known each other for over 20 years And I hope that you can not only tell it when we speak to each other, but I also want you to feel like you're right there with us. So much to learn. And that's why I want to present a special extended edition of The Culture Soup with author, speaker, life strategist, and life coach, and most importantly, my friend, Valerie that I'm on the line with Valerie Burton. She's a great friend of mine. She's a life coach, and she is on her 12th book. Many of them before have been bestsellers. You may have seen her on the Today Show. Valerie, great to have you.
1: It's so good to be here, Michelle. I'm excited about your podcast.
0: Well, thank you. She's joining me all the way from Atlanta, Georgia, one of my favorite towns. And she has a beautiful family. And she is writing that 12th book and we'll talk a little bit about that. But before we get going, how about we have a culture soup moment? Sounds good to me. So I looked at the threads and I see them every day. And there's one topic that never, ever, ever, ever goes away. People are always trying to do self-improvement. They're trying to be motivated. You're trying to get inspiration, and you sit right at that apex, don't you?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we all need inspiration. It really has to come from within. hmm You know, what matters most to you? And I think really importantly, as our lives right now are so busy. We're so bombarded. We're so distracted um, because there are so many forces vying for our attention, especially yeah. digitally that it can be difficult to get clear about what you really want.
0: That's true. And
1: that's really where it starts with getting so, getting motivated. I always have a little bit of a struggle with that phrase
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, because I think what you really need is to be inspired from within and to get clear about your purpose and your vision and what excites you and what are you here for and who are you supposed to be impacting. And when you get about that business, the motivation is there. It's totally. not something have to find it's just there
0: so why do you think people turn to social media is it the fact that there's just a community there of people that may be faceless or there's digital resources that they could turn to um maybe it's a little bit more anonymous i don't know it's all
1: of the above and a lot of it is how we are wired it's how we were built so we love community um we love to feel um for lack of a better word, admired. (laughs) We love to get feedback. And if you think of that from just even the most basic human survival standpoint, Mm -hmm. the person with the most information is the person that's in the best position to survive. Mm -hmm. right? So our brain is wired to look for more information. And when you have it right at your fingertips, it can become addictive, yeah. really. And it does. Because it's constantly, yeah, it's constantly rewarding your brain's need for information, the craving that we have for information. And then you add to that, yeah, that sense of community and the sense of um, belonging and the sense of getting approval. And so whatever your particular issue is, yes, <laughs> there's probably a way that you can try to meet it via social media and that doesn't mean social media is bad but we can get into some habits that are counterproductive
0: true so you mentioned the approval piece and that's where my mind went as you were speaking i was reading how as we start to share our information and we get the likes the thumbs up you know uh, what have you the comments that are encouraging that it's a dopamine hit on your brain sure is which actually makes it addictive so sometimes we go searching for that validation. You agree?
1: It's a loop. We get that, we get that bit of dopamine. It helps us energizes us. We feel good and we want more Mm -hmm. of it. And so we keep searching for more and more and more of it. And the world that we live in today um, is very different than even 10 or 15 years ago where we had to stop at a certain point when it came to information. Mm -hmm. So You know, what social media feed have you ever been to the bottom of? Yeah, (laughs) that's true. (laughs) There's no bottom. It doesn't just stop. (laughs) So we have to find those ways to stop ourselves Mm -hmm. um, because if we really are struggling with it, um, there's not going to be any kind of natural way that it's going to resolve itself. You have to make a decision that you want to resolve it, and you have to make your own rules for how you want to engage with social media.
0: Absolutely. So many of us use it for business. And for marketing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is a personal side to it. And I, for one, I quit Facebook personally um, I last admit, year. <laughs> I'm
1: sad about it.
0: You're mad about I was,
1: it? I was sad about it. Oh, <laughs>
0: well, that's sweet. Um, I mean, I do have a business page out there for the Culture Soup. I don't nurture it <laughs> probably as much as I should because I'm not there. And it was the most liberating thing. Oh
1: yeah. I I totally get where you were coming from. And for me, I have limited my personal Mm -hmm. the personal you're talking about um uh engagement. I don't do it as much Mm -hmm. um, with more of a focus on the professional side because there's so much to keep up with, and if you're on more than one platform Mm -hmm. and then you talk about the whole approval and the comparisons, and oh my goodness, even if not naturally wired that way you still end up having to deal with it because it's right
0: right and sometimes you get dragged into things (laughs) whether you're looking for it or not you know what valerie i'm trying to remember when we met it had to have been around 2000 maybe 1999 more than that she's shaking her head
1: i believe it was percent that we shared a mentor
0: Maybe
2: Jeff.
1: I believe. No. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> we were at an event that I believe. I'm trying to remember the name of the hotel. It was a nice hotel in Dallas, and um, our mutual mentor, Ed Stewart who was at Southwest Airlines at the time, introduced us. And it was an event. I think Troy Aikman was being featured or something. And I was sitting there talking to him. That's when I met you. And Ed went on about how sharp you were and how we absolutely had to know each other. Well, shout out to
0: Ed Stewart, (laughs) who was still a dear friend and all up in the (laughs) Kool-Aid all the time with everybody because he cares. (laughs) But yes, wow, I'm glad you remember that because I trying to think if it was a DFWABC event or what it was, but it seems like, you know, after you've known someone so long, it's like they've always been there.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, 97 was a long time ago. Yeah, it so. was.
0: <laughs> it was, man. Valerie, we're old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, 97 and you were running an agency. Mm-hmm. Tell me about I that. I
1: started my PR firm. Um, I was in still in my early mid twenties. Um, and I was always entrepreneurial mm-hmm. and I knew and as a kid, like in elementary school, I wanted to be my own boss, have my own business. And so, uh, I studied journalism in grad school and I had done a couple of PR internships and, um, that's the route I took when I, Started my career. I was in uh, marketing for an accounting firm there in Dallas, and I only had a job for a little under two years yeah. before I launched um, the PR firm. Well, and, and
0: you made your mark here in Dallas. I remember that Valerie, the Burton agency right, was the, agency. Yeah, the Burton agency, um, probably the only African-American female run full service um, integrated marketing and PR, would you say? There were a couple. I had a couple
1: of mentors, um, Howland PR being one of them, and another friend of mine who was a consultant, and I was like, I want to do what you do. And I'm grateful for women who are encouraging. And for Dallas, mm-hmm. Dallas was a great place. I found it to be a place that if you are good at what you do and you work hard, people right. will open a door. Not everything is
0: that. And shout out to Lyria Howland who was amazing, and she was focused (laughs) primarily on diversity, that's for sure, which is great. And so um, you were running your agency, I think at the time I was at Ketchum Public Relations, that global agency, and we became friends. And then one day you came to me and said what?
1: Yeah, I had had sold my PR business um, after I had an epiphany one day that I was supposed to inspire women to live more fulfilling lives. And that I would do that through writing and speaking and used all my marketing and PR background to self-publish my first book um, with the goal of getting a big publisher to pick it up. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. The book came out in 1999. Mm -hmm. um, And the following year in 2000, Random House picked it up. And the year after that, I sold my business and just went for it. Like, I want to be a speaker. I want to be a writer. And... (laughs) Lord have mercy, I had no idea what all that was going to entail.
0: Think of how far technology has come since that time, right? And you did that before social media. The one thing that... People have always said about you that was just amazing, that helped you to do what you did was that awesome, incredible email list that you had and have. Like thousands upon thousands in the very beginning. I know it's millions on millions now, but you were using email marketing, which, by the way, is still very important these days for loyalty and to keep people engaged in your work. So talk to us about the email marketing, because I think people need to remember that that's even stronger than social when it comes to building a loyal audience. Well, because
1: you own your list, I think that's really important. It's people who have opted in because they have an interest in what you do. Um, When I first started an email list, it was a, a weekly, actually it wasn't even a weekly newsletter at the time. It was kind of like, when I felt inspired to say something, right? I didn't even have like a, here's my Well, we were all
0: waiting on it. (laughs) That's all
1: that matters. (laughs) You might have been one of those original people. Let me tell you how my list started. I decided I was going to write a newsletter. I was doing a weekly segment on the NBC station there and on a couple syndicated shows on ABC radio. I would be on every Tuesday. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to write something about what I just talked about on television. So whatever the subject was. So I decided I would go through my own contacts and create a list. And I think that original list had maybe 50 to a hundred people on it. The first news yeah. I sent out, And I sent it out through my AOL account.
0: Wow. <laughs> just blank. it Just got stuff. mail. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. But ago. you know what? You know what? Times have changed so much. Remember the days when you could do that. Now you I mean, people literally do need to opt in. They're like rules about it. But that was a really great way to start. You know, just grab those that Rolodex because that's what we were using.
1: people I knew, so they wouldn't have been upset. Yeah, absolutely. And really, it was probably about four years before I made the commitment that it would be every single week, same time. I actually announced that to my list because I knew it would hold me accountable. And from there, um, it grew. And I really think that... Um, the most important thing is being consistent and having content that people want that actually is helpful to them, um, and being protective of your list, not abusing the list, not just giving it out to uh, people to do whatever oh, no. with. And so
0: that's gold; it's priceless. Yeah, yeah. and so
1: um, that's really, I think, for me, been an engine for my business. And when we started training coaches in, uh, 2010, really the, that whole business, the cap Institute has flourished from the list that started way back then. And now of course we have separate lists and it's, you know, there's a whole lot more to it. Um, but I can't emphasize it enough. There were clients, speaking clients, coaching clients that were on my list a year, two years, three years mm-hmm. before they ever contacted me. I didn't know they were on the list. They were yeah. just wild. Yeah. And, and to me, that's how the real organic marketing happens. And that's the power of sticking with what you're doing it's mm-hmm. not constantly changing up because you don't see the results yet um, because i really believe a really big part of success is just perseverance it isn't mm-hmm. always the best person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's the person that was willing to stick with it to be tenacious and to just be consistent
0: You know what? You don't give yourself nearly as much credit as you should, but that's good. You're humble. What you described was a really robust content strategy Mm. where you were saying, oh, gee, you know, I'm on these shows and I'm going to talk about this. So why don't I write about it? You know, I fell into that, too. I was on the road like crazy speaking. And it's about the time that Black Enterprise said, hey, will you be a contributor? And I was like, where am I going to find the time? Then it hit me well, why don't I write about what I spoke about? (laughs) And and you know what? Great content strategy. I wasn't thinking of it in that way at that point, but it amplified my content in ways that every other audience might not have seen. You know, Um, a new audience got exposed to it. And suddenly this big um, cyclical thing happened where, you know, I wasn't having to think of new things. But the the quality of what I was speaking about was shining through in writing, or I could expound on it, or you know take another route with it. But the ideas were always there.
1: That is so important, and for me as well, that was a major turning point. So when I first started speaking, I thought I needed to say something different with every speech, <laughs> or else I was cheating. Like I already right. said that last week to people in Chicago. Right can't say it in D.C. this week. Right. Which is ridiculous. Of course right. you can <laughs> First oh, of all, it's boy. a really powerful message, and you're trying to get that message to as many people as possible. So even though it may feel uncomfortable to you because you feel like you're repeating yourself – It's brand new to the people who are receiving it. And the first couple of years, I really struggled with that. I felt like, oh, Mm -hmm. I've got to have different stories and different this and that. It's like, no, you've got to figure out what your core message is Mm -hmm. and repeat that message as often as possible to as many people as possible because it's powerful.
0: And then get it down, you know, um, get better and better and better. And that is one way you get better (laughs) by doing it again and again.
1: You know, I don't have major companies calling me because they want me to try out new stuff. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) They they want what I know works so Uh that it it can have the greatest impact on their
0: people. Absolutely. I I got that tidbit from Chris Gardner and didn't realize that I was doing it already. Um, Talked to Ted Rubin before you um, probably about three weeks ago. And he's with brand innovators. And that's where in 2017, I probably spoke with him eight times and each time I might tweak what I said, but it was basically the same thing. And we joked that he could probably give it back to me, but they wanted me in different cities to share that same message because it was strong and it's powerful. And so, um, you know, it was a lesson for me too, because I was thinking, okay, I need to be different. I've got all these little buckets of content. I'm gonna speak on this one first and that one first. And now, you know, the 30-minute mentors around that body of work. So anyway, let's talk about your journey because that first book, and give us the name of that first book.
1: Rich Minds, Rich Rewards. 52 ways to enhance, enrich, and empower your life.
0: And I have to tell everybody, you were client number two. And that's only because of the order that the contracts came in between you and (laughs) (laughs) A'Lelia. You might have been number one. But you're client number two. And I remember that there was a theme that you were working with then that was very powerful. And you probably still talk about it today. And it was about the power of failure.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, well, first of all, you know, failure is one of those core fears. Um, Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be if we really see it as a learning tool. That's one of the things I talked about in that very first book, use failure as a learning tool. And I have failed multiple times in my life, like most people have. Um, And what I found is that if I see it as a growth opportunity, even if at first that's really hard, you know, it's not mm-hmm. like we fail and right in the middle of failing, we're like, Oh, I'm growing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well,
0: I'm failing forward people. Yay.
1: Yeah. There's no yay. <laughs> there. But if we understand it's a part of our journey and when we resist it, we only make it more difficult and a lot longer uh, part of the journey. If instead we recognize, Hey, maybe that wasn't the door for me. Maybe there's some there are some changes that I need to make. Right. Maybe there wasn't a way for me to avoid that because life doesn't go from A to Z in a straight line. And right. if we can embrace that, it just makes it a lot easier. I mean, I think one of the worst things in life is to succeed at something you weren't meant to be doing.
0: Oh, yeah. A lot of people out there doing it. Shout out to the people who are out there succeeding at stuff that they're not happy with. And I hope you're listening now
1: because it's likely to to change. Um, Sometimes failure is the thing that catapults you to where you're supposed to be. That's been my life experience anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: So there's a story that you would tell because you were in the military. Um, And your dad is a veteran, too,
1: right? My dad uh, retired after 24 years in the Air Force. I'm an Air Force brat. I was born on an Air Force base um, in Florida. Then we moved to Germany. Then we moved to Colorado when I was in the fifth grade. And I lived there through my first year of college, which is of significance to your question, because I spent my first year of college as a cadet at the U.S. Air Force Academy. And um, really, Air Force was all I knew. My mom is retired from what used to be called the Army Air Force Exchange Service, which is headquartered in
2: Dallas.
1: That's how I ended up in Dallas when I finished school. Um, and uh, the Air Force Academy was the biggest tourist attraction in the state of Colorado, so I wrote my term paper on it in ninth grade, decided that's where I was going. Uh, I got there and realized that it wasn't, it wasn't my passion, that I had no idea what I was stepping into. Um, and it was, it was really difficult for me. Um, it was a rough year. My parents divorced um, in the first semester that I was there. I was in the hospital three times, had the only surgery I've ever had. The only hospital stays I've ever had were during the course of that year. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, my grades were horrible. So I had been good enough to get a presidential appointment to the Air Force Academy. And I got there and I think, I think the first time I got my grades, it was like a 1.4. Like I'd I didn't know you could get a 1.4. You're
0: testing the scales here. (laughs) Yeah, I lost
1: all academic confidence. I felt dumb. Um, And I knew I was somewhere very special. I knew it was truly an honor to be there. And yet, I didn't feel like it was where I was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. That was really hard. Um, I was there for my whole first year of college. I left at the end of the year. I wanted to get through that first year. I never wanted to leave and feel like I left because it was so hard. Um, And yet I knew what my dreams were. And I realized I wasn't probably going to be able to pursue those. Um, And I left. And so what happened was, because I suddenly felt dumb, like I had not measured up, like I had failed. And I had always been I had always been the youngest. In fact, in my class there, I think I was the third youngest out of 1,400 people. Mm-hmm. Um, I had always been a little ahead, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now I wasn't. So I spent the next few years trying to, like, <laughs> what I thought was my, you know, kind of my identity, that I was, I was the mm-hmm. smartest the fastest youngest. So I, I rushed through school, mm-hmm. and I really missed that journey. I graduated mm-hmm. at 20. I had gone to three colleges in three years in three different states. <laughs> And, um, and then I went straight into grad school, um, in journalism and rushed through that too. So by the time I finished my master's degree and moved to Dallas, I was 21 Mm -hmm. and had just started to, um, enjoy what I was doing. And now I was thrust into the work world.
0: Well, you made a really good point that in the failure inside that moment, you're not happy. You're not seeing, oh, gee, after this, I am just going to blossom. You don't see that. So along your journey, where was that point that you realized that if that door hadn't shut, you wouldn't be able to prosper in the way that you should be prospering?
1: I think in my gut, I mean, I was 17 and 18 when I was there. I think in my gut, I... I Knew, but I didn't really delve into that until I wrote my first book.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I was writing the chapter about using failure, and I I was still embarrassed. Mm-hmm. I was not talking about it. I don't think my I don't think my dad talked about it for a couple of years. Yeah, after he left, you know, he was he was still in the air force. He had been so proud. Um, you know, I had not heard my dad cry until the day I called and read him my acceptance letter.
0: Oh to wow. The air force. You
1: know, and so I was really about, hard. Yeah, I was about 26 when I wrote that first book. I I was like, what are you what are you hiding? What are you
0: embarrassed about? You know, Trudy, I mean, Trudy Bourgeois and I talked about this the other night. Um, your authentic story, your very own story is the thing that really unleashes the power in your life. But so mm-hmm. many of us are a not willing to claim it because it hurts us. It makes us feel some kind of way. We don't want to talk about it because we're embarrassed. We're sad, whatever emotion it might be. So we hold it in. But she says that that's the very diversity of the very thing that makes us so unique that builds our value proposition for leadership. So if we don't talk about it.
1: (laughs) Literally, I just wrote this in, we were talking about the newsletter, about owning it. Yes. Owning every aspect of your life and who you are. And this, for me, has been extremely liberating. It's been an important part of my journey as a writer, as a coach, as a speaker. I talk about these things. I talk about you know, leaving the Air Force Academy and how that caused me to try to overcompensate and how freeing it was to stop overcompensating. Mm -hmm. I talk about going through divorce. I talk about, you know, not having intended to get to my late thirties and be divorced with no kids when I wanted to be a wife and a mom. Mm -hmm. And those things, we all deal with them. They might not be the the same scenarios, but we all have those disappointments. We all have the things we look back and think, why did I do that? Mm -hmm. Or why didn't I see that? But your wisdom comes from learning the lessons from those things and owning it and not needing to be perfect and saying, yeah, I've dealt with that too. That's how we connect with other people. When we're able to be honest about our own
0: stories, that's exactly it. Because when you start to share the other people are like, wow, I've been through that. Or (laughs) I know that feeling or gee, she's courageous. And so people can't even get to that point. If you're tamping down all the things that make you, you, because everything that makes you, you, it's the ebbs, it's the tides. It's all of it. It's not just the wins. It's the losses too.
1: I would say, in many ways, it's the losses even more. Mm-hmm. What I found, for example, when I went through divorce, um, I was afraid that somehow I didn't have a right to keep writing and speaking because look, my life doesn't look
0: perfect. Yes. Perfect. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and uh, the amazing thing is my career took off after I divorced. Yep my biggest success has happened immediately after that in part because of my ability to be honest. And I realized that people didn't reject me because of that. And it was, it was almost ridiculous because I realized I wouldn't have rejected someone yeah. because of that, but I was holding myself to a different standard. Right. And instead, people said, I relate to you more now. Um, or I see that you've been through some of what I've been through. It actually made me more compassionate about pain yeah. and, in people's trials and difficulties. Um, and so, you know, there's something in research that's called post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. And we talk a lot about post-traumatic stress disorder, which is very real, but also when we go through very difficult experiences, we can actually grow from that. And it's not that we, choose to go through them but since we're going through them (laughs) can we somehow be better and that even became my mantra I will be better and not bitter I said that to myself so many times Mm -hmm. I was determined to be better on the other side as opposed to being better
0: when you wrote the book around resilience
1: yeah where Mm -hmm. will you go from here moving forward when life doesn't go as planned
0: well you touched on something too that's very important the negative self-talk that holds you back. Trudy calls it the itty-bitty committee. It's, it's that <laughs> thing that's between your ears that yeah. tells you something. And Lord knows where we get these things. Maybe it's our experience. Maybe it's the way we grew up. Maybe it's just our environment and we deduced it and came up with it ourselves that tamps down our story and our truths, so that we mm-hmm. can't see our full potential. We don't understand that those negative times, those challenges, are actually springboards.
1: You know what, Michelle? I actually think we do see our potential, okay. and I, I think it scares us. I think we see our potential, and we are so afraid that we might not reach it, that we don't want to experience that disappointment. And so in order to protect ourselves from the possibility of such a huge disappointment, we just shrink.
0: Yeah. We make,
1: we make the dream smaller. We stop really embracing what the potential might be because what if, what if I'm wrong? What if I get that? But it's the stuff that our heart hopes most for.
2: Yeah.
1: It threatens the biggest disappointment. And so we have to be willing to risk. And when we Failure differently, it's possible to risk it. I mean, if, if we look at failure as an opportunity to grow and to learn, then we can risk the possibility that maybe we don't get exactly what we yeah. want, but we'll grow from the experience.
0: This is a mindset. And it's interesting because the format of this podcast is that I sit down with my friends, old and new, and we talk about you know something off of the internet that spurs and tease up their story but the themes that I'm seeing are not just around entrepreneurship and technology and business um, and culture it it really sometimes it it focuses in on those stories that we weren't necessarily proud of and probably still aren't (laughs) but wow after that moment and I own that moment guess what I got to do next And, you know, now businesses and Harvard Business Review has called it failing forward or fast failing, you know, fail fast and keep going. Um, But I'm seeing this thread in these very successful people that they're owning failure. And it's, you know, well, gee, it hurts, but it's not a bad thing.
1: Well, I think it takes a lot of energy to hide from your failures, to have shame around your failures. I mean, that's the idea that somehow you are not good enough or there's something wrong with you as opposed to failures just an event and so that's a, there's a that's a really important shift and you mentioned mindset and and the idea of mindset one of one of the things i discovered as i was you know i went back to grad school a second time back in 07 at the university of pennsylvania to study applied positive psychology it was amazing some of the research that you know, I began learning about and being exposed to. And one that really impacted me was the work of Dr. Carol Dweck, who wrote a book called Mindset about fixed versus growth mindset. And I realized in many areas I had had a fixed mindset when I was at the academy. That was a fixed mindset that felt like the failure was defining who I was as opposed to being an event that happened that I could learn from. And so there really is a huge difference between failing and being a mm-hmm. failure. Absolutely. <laughs> you
2: know,
1: failing is like, oh, that happened. What do I right. learn from it? Being a failure is, is your identity. And so if you process it differently, then you can really have a growth mindset and say, well, what can I learn from this experience? And so for many of us who have succeeded in many ways, and I'm talking about from mm-hmm. childhood, You may have been praised for being smart, for being gifted, for being talented Mm -hmm. in some way, and it became a part of your identity. And that can create a fixed mindset where when you fail at something, when it doesn't go well, you really Mm -hmm. almost panic because now this somehow might prove that you are not as wonderful and smart and talented as you or anyone else thought you were. Uh, and so I think a lot of people who actually are have always been thought of as mm-hmm. being smart struggle with that and in fact even the idea of effort that we have to put forth a lot of effort to mm-hmm. get what we want. Um for those with a fixed mindset is like, oh no, 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 no. You know, you might have been one of those kids in school that every time you got an AI I didn't be right. that hard. Right? Absolutely. Because people with a fixed mindset don't really praise or don't really value the effort, the The tenacity of having to do something over and over and over again in order to be able to get to where you want to be. But if you just see this as a journey and there are setbacks, there are things to learn and that where you are right now is just a starting point. There's so much more potential. There's so much more to learn. You don't have to know it all right now.
0: You know um going back to our culture soup moment we're talking about motivation and inspiration and people looking for um self-improvement online um, one of the things that sprung out of this cultural you know point online is that we see more and more people out there coaching and whether they are actually trained to coach or if they just took on the nomenclature it's like it's um You know, you can't swing a hashtag without finding a coach, but you actually (laughs) are trained in it. I want you to talk about the CAP Institute and how you're pouring into other people and certifying them to actually be bona fide coaches and the research that goes into it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So part of my vision when I went to study applied positive psychology was to bring this academic research-based foundation to the field of coaching. That was part of what I wanted to help do. Um, and so I started coaching in 2002. That's when I went through my first training um, and learned that, wait a minute, this is really mm-hmm. a discipline just like any other professional discipline. And coaching is really Helping people get from where they are right now to where they want to be, whereas often we think of counseling or therapy or psychology is really looking at where have you been and how can you get healthy in the present based mm-hmm. on what you've been through. So coaching is very forward-focused. It's really dealing more with opportunity than with problems. That's kind of a, a way that I like to look at it. And so in 09 I launched the CAP Institute. CAP stands for Coaching and Positive Psychology. Um, And we launched our first big program in 2010 and we continue to do those and we continue to do them now. In 2011, we launched our certification program, which is um, accredited for coach-specific training hours through the International Coach Federation. And at this point, we have trained personal and executive coaches in every state and 15 countries. Um, And for me, it is so important to... Be a part of having professionals that help people uh, reach their goals. And you're right. Because coaching is not a regulated industry, anybody can call themselves a coach. In fact, part of how I became a coach is, like like I said, I was doing those regular segments on TV and radio, and they kept calling me a coach. And I kept arguing with them, like, I'm not a coach. I don't have clients. But they just wanted wanted something to call me. Well,
0: we went through (laughs) this, too, because... At some point, and and this is part of our story, you came to me and you're like, I want to write and speak. (laughs) And I know you're trying to launch your agency. I'm closing mine down. I don't want to do my own PR. So will you represent me? And of course I said yes. um, But one of the things that you were struggling with, it was trying to figure out what to call yourself. Because you didn't want to be called a coach because you wanted to be certified to be a coach. So we landed on life strategist you remember that? That's right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I still sometimes am called a life strategist because that's really what I'm doing. And, and that's such a part of who I am. I mean, even when I was in public relations, I called myself a PR strategist um, because I really think it is about at each point. Sometimes you really have to strategize about what right. the best next step
0: will right. be. Right. Awesome. Have your first book, Rich Minds, Rich Rewards. You hire me, <laughs> um, and then you start speaking and writing. So, what was that transition like? Because you mentioned, man, it was it was more than that. I I thought it would be like I didn't know what I was biting off. Yes.
1: Well, first of all, let me give you your you your props because you got me my first national column. <laughs> with Heart Soul Magazine when that was around. My first, yes, my first ever appearance on CNN, you set that up. And you also had me uh, host a pilot for a TV show. So like my first experience doing that, you, you did all of those things.
0: Thank you. <laughs> but when your client has great content, the job is easy. Because you don't have to create it.
1: Um, <laughs> Thanks, Michelle. What was hard for me when I when I was mentioning um, it took longer is I am an optimist, and um, mm-hmm. that serves me very well because especially if you're an entrepreneur, especially if you're inspiring other people, you need to be optimistic. And at the same time, I was overly optimistic about how long it would take me to really build up a mm-hmm. business that could sustain me. And you know, when you're speaking and especially writing, writing is not no. the easiest field to crack. (laughs) Um, it takes time. And so I would say that before I was where I thought I would be in the Mm -hmm. first year was probably about Mm -hmm. seven years, seven years. And those first few years, I did a lot of going on the road and speaking. Mm -hmm. I wasn't even being paid. I might sell books and bring home a little bit of something. I was just trying to get in front of people, meet people that would open doors. And eventually those doors began opening, but it
2: took, uh, it took a lot. I'm,
0: I'm a member of the black speakers network and they talk about this very point. Every speaking engagement isn't always a speaker fee. Sometimes it is, Oh gee, it's an opportunity to sell your products and services and that's the income you bring home. Sometimes you don't bring home income at all because you just want the exposure and you want the contacts. But you have to balance those along the way because you can't do a whole bunch of those because you'll be broke. (laughs) So to be a professional speaker and that's the cornerstone of your business is quite a challenge, wouldn't you say?
1: It's it is an investment. And first of all, you need practice. (laughs) So. Um, getting in front of an audience often is your opportunity to learn how to speak to an audience, how to engage the audience, how to keep their attention, how to be most effective. And that's something, I don't care how many times you practice in a mirror at home, it's different when you're up on a stage. And so a lot of what you need is just being able to be as comfortable and effective as possible. And you need to be able to meet people and meet the right people. And that just takes time. So um that is a lot. That's a lot of of what I was doing and I was looking at what speakers who were at the level I wanted to be were doing. And what was encouraging to me is I thought there's right. no like there's no magic. <laughs> right. <laughs> like they're just talking. So learning how to talk, how to deliver a message, how to package that, how to get to the point where It just comes out very naturally and, you know, there are no notes and, you know, all of that is a part of being a professional speaker, keeping your time, you know, they gave you 35 minutes. You need to use 35 minutes and not 36.
0: (laughs) Right. You know, I talk about not using notes every once in a while, I talk about not using notes and this, this comes from my corporate media trainer and corporate speaking background where I was training CEOs to go on the big stage and ring the bell and be on CNBC all of this good stuff and I heard somebody say oh yeah I memorized too and I was like whoa (laughs) like we're not aiming for memorization um because you will sound memorized you want to speak to I've never memorized
1: anything um I actually I know what points I'm making and I typically have stories connected with this I'm right I have a message if you know your message, there's nothing to be memorized. It's, it's a part of who you are. And so, you know, one of my biggest hurdles in the very beginning, Michelle, is I, you know, the category of being a motivational Mm -hmm. speaker. And I had this image of the motivational speaker. I was looking at them and they were like running up on the stage. And there was all of this, like,
2: you can't do it.
1: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and I was like, I, and I was just picturing myself having to do that, and I was so like, ugh, no. <laughs> yeah,
0: no, and that's not, not you. Me. <laughs> and it
1: made me very anxious, and I had to basically coach myself. And I said, well, mm-hmm. what's your message, and what's authentic for you? And I was like, what's authentic for me is mm-hmm. I'm really trying to reach the person that's sitting there. So. I'm going to talk like I'm talking to one person because the truth I'm talking to one person. If you're listening, I'm talking to you. <laughs> it's, I never, even when I'm exactly. talking, I never, I, I don't talk like I'm talking to a crowd. I'm talking to you. Right. I believe our paths crossed for a reason exactly. and I'm talking to you. So whatever somebody else does, it might work exactly. for them, but I've got to do what works for me. So I think of I don't I never call right. it a speech. It's a conversation, it's a message, it's trying to deliver it in a way right. that feels like I'm talking to you as somebody I care about that I really believe our paths crossed for a reason. There's something I'm I'm meant to say. And maybe in the thirty minutes or hour there's only one sentence that's for you. But it's what you needed today.
0: you need to read your audience, and it needs to be a dance. And if you're getting a vibe from that audience, you need to be able to pivot. Can you talk about that? Have you been in that situation?
1: Well, I used to get nervous when I would get ready to speak. And there was one speaking engagement I did in Saskatchewan, Canada, where I was feeling particularly nervous. I was speaking three times in the same day and to the same audience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they were all keynotes. And I I stopped and said, what are you nervous about? And I realized what I was nervous about was I was thinking about myself. It was mm-hmm. like, it was funny. Were they going to like me? It was all me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was like, I felt like God was saying to me, this isn't about you. Yeah. You're there to serve. Yeah, It's about the people in the audience. And suddenly something just switched for me. Mm-hmm. I'm there to serve. Mm-hmm. I'm nervous about serving. No. It is completely a place of I'm here to give you something and I know why you need it specifically today. You know, your individual circumstance from that point on, I always remembered I'm here to serve. Right. And that takes away all nervousness because then it's not about me at all. It's about my audience. I often Mm -hmm. will for my audience before I even speak Mm -hmm. just the the message that, that they will hear what is meant for them. And for me, that, that just makes the whole process a lot easier. It takes a lot of the anxiety out of it.
0: Yeah. You know, um, just like there are a lot of coaches out there, there are a lot of speakers out there and I'm hoping that they're getting words of wisdom from you today on this broadcast, but there are a lot of people striving to write books Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my guests that I just interviewed the other day, Jason Caston, has a tech startup, which is um, a platform where you can self-publish your book, market it, distribute it, all of it, all in one place, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, there are only a few others out there like that that do what that does. But there is an audience out there where – and I think the internet and social media has provoked and enabled – people to be able to get their message write it down publish it and get it out there any tips that you might have for folks who are either trying to self-publish or even talking to the big publishing houses because you've been through this several times
1: Mm -hmm. I think you need to understand what your why why are you writing a book Mm -hmm. at the end of the day what will people get that they didn't have before they read your book that's really important. And then what is your unique take on it? What makes it unique? There are so many thousands of books published every year. Mm-hmm. How do you stand out? Um, I think that although we hear you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, a book is judged by its cover. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Make sure your cover is fabulous. Mm-hmm. That it, it speaks to your audience. Um, that your title speaks to your audience. What I see most with people trying to publish books is that they miss the mark on the title mm-hmm. and the cover. And then they might have fabulous content that no one ever picks up right? because it didn't grab them or it might've even pushed them away. <laughs> mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I think it's very important to, um, look at the marketing, even while you're writing, meaning, you're really thinking about what will engage the reader and these days that means engage them get them talking on mm-hmm. online um, get them talking to their friends their colleagues mm-hmm. about your work because your ideas are different <laughs> and right. they are having impact so content is always the most important but your packaging um needs to support the great content
0: absolutely um you know there are a lot of folks doing eBooks. I have done a couple of them, and for me, they're test balloons mm-hmm. for a, a larger project. Um, do you have advice for folks that are doing eBooks? Because it's very different. Um, there, it's, it's bite-sized content. It's not necessarily a full book, mm-hmm. um, but you're trying to deliver a message, as you put it. How oh, you have any advice for people who are trying to sell their products in that way?
1: Well, I think digital format is fantastic because, um, you can get it out very quickly and there's a very small amount of expense of being able to do it. And everybody has the ability to read your ebook now, (laughs) 20 years ago. That wasn't really, uh, the case. So if you're thinking about it, starting with an ebook, I think is a really great idea. Um, and, but the same thing applies. You still got to have great packaging and really great content and so focus most on your message and your content because even though like i said the marketing is important the packaging is important if you grab them with the packaging and then they open it up and it's nothing new it's nothing fresh it's nothing helpful then it's just something that's pretty that has no substance
0: So, oh. book number 12. Yes. You're working on pre-orders. So tell us about it. What's it called?
1: The book is called It's About Time, The Art of Choosing the Meaningful Over the Urgent. Mm.
0: And Wow, that, that will preach on its own. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's, she's practicing what she preaches to people, that's for sure. Yeah. That title gets you.
1: Thank you. This book has changed my life and my husband's life. We... About two years ago, decided to embark on a journey of experimenting with new ways of um, allocating our time. My husband's a pilot. Uh, Obviously, I I travel not as much as he does, but I travel. We have three kids, um, and it's a lot of moving parts. And we began really questioning what we were doing and how we were doing it and looking for ways to have more time together as a family, to not feel so um, just on the move constantly. And in doing that, um, we, (laughs) I mean, we made a lot of changes, just simple things like planning a year out in advance, which ultimately led to a fabulous family vacation that other family members started saying, hey, we want to come. But yeah. <laughs> so there we all are in the Mediterranean with my mom and my aunt and his dad and stepmom. Yeah, like,
0: how did this happen?
1: <laughs> kids, and it really happened from let's be intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, as a pilot, we don't always get the vacation dates that he wants. And so what we had done is fallen into this pattern of um, not planning our yeah. vacations, and we said, no, this doesn't work for us. What can we do? And so we figured that out. Um, we took some time off. We started having what we called staycation days throughout the month, where you know we might take one or two days where we just spent time together. We might go hiking. We might get our hammocks out and and just enjoy one another. And you to- know what?
0: I just realized something about you and your hubby. Yeah, as a pilot, because his schedule really. Isn't I mean, it's planned out, but then, then it's not, right? Of he course. has to be able to move on a dime, right? And then as an entrepreneur that's speaking and writing, you could be always on if you're not careful. Mm. So the two of you together, yeah, y'all are busy all the time. And then add in the three and the four-year-old that's, he's got his own agenda. <laughs> that he, could be really off the chain, Valerie. He,
1: Our four-year-old is the only one who's not always moving because our oldest two are my bonus daughters. So we have them uh, about 13 days a month. So they come and go, which is coordinates with my husband's schedule when he's Mm -hmm. here. So Jeff is coming and going. I'm not coming and going quite so much, Mm -hmm. um, but Alex is always here. Yes. And so, yeah, and he's, uh, he's something else. He's wonderful. (laughs) He's Um, a cutie. (laughs) yeah and so in slowing down we just changed some things and we actually dusted off some old dreams we didn't know we had we ended up moving um to basically a farm ranch whatever you want to call it because we remembered my husband's dream of uh of having a house with an airstrip and being able to fly and so that's what we encountered like it just appeared I still don't know who posted it I our house. I actually saw it somewhere (laughs) online and just haphazardly sent it to my husband, not because I wanted to move, but I was like, Hey, look, (laughs) thinking maybe this is something we'll do in 10 years or so. Add it to
0: the vision board.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Add it to the vision board. And my husband had started driving by the house and, Oh. Oh, did you go look at it? I was like, look at what, like, it was not something I was seriously considering. And so we have a life that is very unique very adventurous, very meaningful for us. And we have been able to take better control of our time. And in the process of writing the book, what I came to realize is that all of us are dealing with changes that have fundamentally shifted our relationship with time. Mm-hmm. Um, If we go back in time, I mean, really, it's really the industrial revolution that changed everything. But I didn't even realize before that, you know, there were 300 time zones just in the United States. What?
0: (laughs) Talk about that.
1: I mean, watches, people didn't have watches, right? That was like a very expensive thing that wealthy people had. Right. you wanted to tell needed to look at where the sun was and, you know, maybe go to the middle of town if you had town. Um, But basically every place had its own time. But when we started having businesses to flourish and we needed train schedules and so forth, we had to get lined up. Exactly. And then you thrust us into the 21st century where we know what everyone is doing at exactly the same time. And we feel the pressure of looking at what everyone else is doing. Mm Mm-hmm. We have the digital distractions where, you know, advertising itself is, you know, the prices are determined by time on site. Yeah, You are constantly being lured to spend your time doing things other than what you've probably planned. Mm-hmm. And so you need to have a plan to be intentional about your time because there are a lot of false urgencies, things that feel like we need to be attending to them right now. That's why I think it's great that you just said. You know what? I'm going to pick my social media platform and stick with it because I'm being I feel like I'm being sucked into things that I don't want to be sucked into, Mm -hmm. And those things feel urgent at the moment. And they're not.
0: They do because they're they're everywhere. Surround sound. Yeah. You know, it's not just, oh, gee, I log onto my computer and there it is. No, these alerts are going off on my phone. Like, and sometimes you can't tell the text messages that are urgent from the emails that are coming in, let alone the Facebook notifications. Like you got to tamp some of those down.
1: That's right. So in, in the book, I really talk about not only kind of the external things that are impacting us, but also what I call core vulnerabilities. And I created a whole assessment in the book around this, but all of us have some core vulnerabilities that make it even harder for us to choose the meaningful. So for example, I mentioned optimism for me. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. Uh, You tend to think you can do more in in less time. It's not true. Um, For others, it's, it's issues around perfectionism. For example, a lot of us have that as a core vulnerability. Excessive guilt is another core vulnerability. I mean, uh, and I find this as I've coached over the years, a lot of Especially single parents can feel like they need to overcompensate for things for their kids, and so yeah. they may spend extra time in ways that, if they look back, they go, Ah, maybe I should have done that. Or maybe you have people that manipulate you, and so they use guilt to get you to spend your time doing what they want as opposed to what you want. So we really are living in a time that's very different when it comes to being intentional about what we do with our time. And if we're not careful, we can spend our lives doing the things that seem important only to get to the end and realize that we missed out on the things that really are.
0: That's good stuff. And Valerie, all of your books are good stuff. Like every last one of them, I haven't been able to read them all. You churn them out. Like, I mean, it's amazing. I am very impressed. What can my listeners do to get their hands on your book? When will it be ready?
1: It is ready for pre-order right now. So The book officially is released April 30th, but you can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Christianbook.com, any of the, whatever your favorite retailer is, iBooks, and order it. We want people to order it early because that impacts our numbers in terms of bestseller lists. That is my ask if this topic is of interest to you at all, just whip out your phone and go ahead and order it. And then they'll automatically send it to you. Or if you are downloading the ebook it all, automatically become available
0: That's
1: wonderful. Uh, April 30th. So and give you us the name one it. more
0: time. It's about time. Huh?
1: The art of choosing the meaningful over the urgent.
0: Okay. Everybody take note of that. Go to Amazon, go to Barnes and Noble, go to anywhere you get great books online and pre-order it now. Yay. Valerie, (laughs) this is a great conversation. (laughs) I enjoyed it. I always enjoy talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, And If there's ever anything that we can do for you, let us know. You are always welcome to come back, too.
1: Thank you. Likewise.
0: Wow. What an incredible conversation with Valerie Burton, author, life coach, life strategist, and speaker, and my friend. Next week, we're going to have John Graham Jr., who is an employee advocacy expert and also what he calls an authenticity enabler. You need to hear this guy because he gets really philosophical about your social capital and how you can wield it for yourself and for your company. Find us online at The Culture Soup, on Instagram and Twitter, and theculturesoup.com. See you online. The Culture Soup Podcast is a production of No Silos Communication.